0: Welcome to McKinsey on Government. Each episode examines one of the hardest problems facing government today and solutions from McKinsey experts and other leaders. I'm the host of McKinsey on Government, Francis Rose. The last year and a half has certainly been a time of change in the federal government and the next 18 months will include even more. Organizing for change is the subject of McKinsey on Government this week with Kirk Rykoff, partner with McKinsey and Company. Kirk, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Just about every federal government leader that I've talked to in the last 15 years at some point in time brings up the subject of change management as a difficult concept for them uh, to deal with with whatever they have in front of them. Why is change so hard? And maybe by explaining why change is so hard, you can give me the concept behind this idea of organizing for change. Setting oneself up for success is kind of the the thought that I take behind that concept. Kirk, welcome.
1: Well, thanks, and it's, it's really great to be here, and I and I appreciate the time, Francis. You know, when I hear the question, "Hey, why is change so hard?" Uh, I, I would almost turn it on its head and say, "Well, it shouldn't be easy, right?" Because at some level. The, if you think of organizations, which is really what we're talking about, um, these are systems with people in them, and so the the system is operating in the way it, that it's status quo. That's all the kind of the forces sort of sum up to leave it. It's almost like imagine uh, a a ball between two hills. And it rolls and stays in the middle, or a big boulder, right? A leader can sit there and try and push it up the hill and hold it up there. Uh, But once a leader gets distracted and moves it away, it's going to go right back to where the natural equilibrium of this place is. That's frankly where you're encountering an organization is typically it's in its natural equilibrium state, unless it's in some sort of big uh, external chain. And so in a way, it's set up to not change. And so you've got to ask yourself, all right, what do I do in a way to shift that equilibrium point, shift, you know, the, the ball over and, and that's i think we have to start with the discussion i think the second is if if that's sort of the big co- the conceptual version of a systems thinking at the same time what i love about the fact is that it's it's a system that has uh, individuals with free will in the middle of it all and so it's a you know whenever our you know if you're an engineer when you're building a bridge you think about the uh prop- is the material that is part of that bridge in any system that's true. And this is a system of people. So it's actually what matters to the people in the system and working within that, not against it.
0: As you're describing the idea of the leader pushing the rock up the hill, it strikes me what makes that leader's job easier is bringing a bunch of people around him or her to help push the rock up the hill. What have you seen as uh, successful ways that leaders can bring people in, can engage them in the change itself, help them understand, yeah, this isn't going to be easy, but there's some better outcome on the other side, which is the reason that we're doing this instead of just change for change's sake.
1: I, I, it's a great question. Uh, I think it starts, I, I break the answer into three. Things. So to continue the analogy, to pound it into the ground of the boulder going up the hill, um, you know having more people help you push that boulder makes it easier dot okay but what you really want to do is look you can't dig out and move the whole new hill but you know what you could do is you could dig out a section of the hill and all of a sudden the boulder falls in there and i'll at least stay there and what that's what you're looking to do is the second thing so get a bunch of people around you who can help you do it and figure out what can i change that makes this the new normal way even if it could slide back, but you know what? If I were to leave and get distracted, it's most likely going to stay where it's at uh, and, and it'll be okay there.
0: What does a leader do that's successful in engaging his team so that the leader is not the only person pushing the boulder? And maybe it's maybe it, the analogy makes more sense given the context you just added that that boulder is just on a, on a piece of flat ground and it gets to a certain distance, and if the leader disengages, it just kind of sits there. Maybe it doesn't roll all the way back down the hill and you go back to nothing, but it just doesn't continue. Whichever analogy you use, engaging the people around that leader, the people that that person leads, is really critical to success regardless of what someone's trying to accomplish.
1: I might put it in a couple different ways. I think the first one is the team around you, you know, it's a simple thing to say, but it is the most important factor Um, of the success that you're going to have where it is that team and getting them on board. If you really believing in the change that you're doing, uh, that's going to make the difference because you're only one person, but you can amplify this aspiration if you have 10 other people on board with you. Um, And so the question is, is how do you do that? How do you get the people on board? Because they're the ones, frankly, you're not going to be this idea of you're controlling them or telling them what to do. it, It just is ludicrous. None of us, you know, no senior leader is really interested in someone else directing them on what to go do. That's They became a senior leader because they like to make things happen. So in that kind of a context, this is about, I think, the leader first setting that aspiration and then convincing others that this is the right place to be. Um, and that means appealing to them across the five sources of meaning that we all have. we each got our own single one. But, you know, you know, whether it's appealing to the mission or appealing to yourself, uh, your need for self-improvement or appealing to the customers that you're serving or the organization that you're a part of. Um, these are the, the source of the deep whys that really get people going. We've all got one of them. So I would, I would appeal to that. Um, and ideally make it make sense across all of them. I think the second part though, is painting this aspiration is great, but then you also have to equally describe what reality is today and get common agreement on there and then the gap between those two things is what powers you, powers the team. So we know where we are, we know where we're headed. We don't know how we're going to get there quite frankly, but we at least know those two things and then we're going to work ourselves through it.
0: Once you have the people on board, the good leader I imagine has a plan, has uh, has uh tactical considerations that that leader must take in order to move that rock whether it's uphill or on a flat piece of ground to continue that analogy. Uh, What are the most successful mechanics for change and how granular should a leader be when he or she is deciding what that plan will look like, Kirk?
1: I think a good leader has a plan. I think a great leader is somebody who has um, the rough outlines of where we're going and lets everyone figure it out from there. Uh, And really what I'm getting at here is that I I see most of the change efforts, the, the second favorite technique uh, other than saying no uh, to resisting change is to say yes and then not do anything. And not doing anything really is by staying in the planning mode the whole time. So I, which will just get blown up once you start doing it anyways. But I think having like a high level view of what the basic blocks are going to be, what are milestones that we're looking at, and then the main lines of effort, who's responsible for making what happen. And then let's get going and make stuff go, uh, make stuff happen. I think that is the, the key to success of uh, making change happen is to start the change uh, versus planning for, it. you know, step zero doesn't get you anywhere, you got to go to step one, two, three, um, which I would just add on to that the idea of what I call the illusions of quick wins. Uh, look, I, I love quick wins. But oftentimes, most organizations will have accomplished those already instead of looking for sort of quick wins that people are going to try and erode anyways, what you're really looking for are quick progress. And it doesn't mean like a thing that was fully developed and baked, like, look at this new thing we've done. It is rather just to begin showing people who have been in this system, oftentimes where they've been trying to make change happen, couldn't. that change is possible. Uh, It might even be you just making really clear decisions on the first few things that here's what we're going to go do, making ones like moving resources, or appointing new people to roles asking other people to leave roles it's those kinds of things that people begin saying you know what i the actions are following their words so i'm going to follow it and, and do it as well
0: so the connection too between the first and second points between the the idea of getting people on board and what the mechanics of change look like is if a leader has the confidence and courage i think are the best words to describe it to let the plan kind of fill itself out as time goes on, those people are going to be engaged enough and have skin in the game, and they're going to want to sign on for uh, the effort that it takes to make whatever the change is successful on a much higher level, I would think. Is that a fair read?
1: I think so, absolutely.
0: Where are the potential problems, the pitfalls? What are the issues that time after time after time people that try to make big change, people that try to push big rocks, run into that they shouldn't need to?
1: Well, certainly there are a lot. This is the fun of the game, right? Uh, This is why I love doing what we do because you keep encountering new ones and they're always going to present differently, which is great. But to answer your question, I think uh, maybe I'll name off some of the three most common ones I see. Uh, I think the first one is around the frozen middle, what I commonly hear people talk about, where the typical story goes something like, uh, the leader has the vision and has a new policy they've enacted, uh, but they can't get it through to the front lines, and they blame the frozen middle for it and uh, being resisted. I actually think that it's looking at it completely the wrong way. The people in the middle are actually, I think, the people who have the most expertise, because they can see the front lines, right? They're close enough that they're seeing what really has to happen oftentimes. They can also see to the top of the organization or or the pressures that are coming down. And they're right in between those two things. And if nothing's happening, it's probably because those people are quite smart and understand sort of, all right, well, this doesn't work for either my situation or for just the answer. And so I think the real question then is, well, why isn't it? and let's change what we're doing. If this policy isn't working, there's a reason for it. And engage that middle management, figure out how to make it work for them. Um, I think we can spend a lot of our time trying to get the senior leaders on board, but actually what you want to do is just make it make sense for the middle management to be able to uh, uh, go after. For example, the the classic version uh, that I see is where at the top level they'll come up with a policy Um, and maybe even the resources in terms of money, which that often doesn't happen, maybe we get the money. But then the authorities that actually it takes to execute are fragmented across, and yet you ask the middle management to do it, but in order for middle management to, to do something like, I see this with testing and evaluation all the time, you have to go to a separate chain of command and then go all the way up. That whole thing just bogs it down. There's no, getting things done isn't easy. And so the middle management is stuck, even if they didn't want to be frozen there. So I think you got to shift the perspective and just assume the middle management is going to be where all the action happens and bring them in as you're building out how we going to actually get this thing done.
0: So what is the secret to bringing those people in? Because as you describe them, I, I mean, that's exactly what I scribbled down here, engaging those people's critical to success. How do great leaders, though, really hear those people and incorporate what those people know into the strategy or the tactics of moving, driving change?
1: I think the first one is that you you have a choice to make. Um, Do you want to engage them on, is this a good idea or not? Or do you want to engage them on, how do we get this thing done? You can do one or the other or both. Frankly, I, I have found that most of the middle management is comfortable with leadership's a collective uh, wisdom, they see a lot of things middleman doesn't necessarily see. So they get the fact that policies are gonna be made and missions, you know, NASA as an example, whether you're gonna go to the moon or go to an asteroid, okay, fine, that's gonna happen. The real question comes down below, how do I get that done? And so I would engage them not on the what needs to get done, but on the how to get it done. And that is frankly, we need to be honest with each other. Are you the kind of leader who, who wants to engage in the what? That's a lot of the policy side or are you going to engage in the how which is really making change happen change of, ha, changes about the how not the what and so i would encourage uh you to know, think through the uh, engaging with them on the how to make this happen hearing their concerns about what's going to hold them back what needs to be true um the second i would Uh, I think you'll find is there will be people who want to really, they love it. They want to make it happen. There will be a group of people who absolutely no way. And then there's the middle part who are like on the fence. Uh, I wouldn't worry about either the two extremes. Just focus on that middle, middle part, which is to say, Hey, how, what do you all who are on the fence actually need to make this thing work? Um, And how do we show it's happening?
0: The piece that I pull out of what you just said there, Kirk is, The leaders that lead organizations are there to be the ones that decide what. And so it strikes me that that's almost counterproductive for them to be engaging that frozen middle, if we want to call it that, on the what. It strikes me as incredibly logical that the leadership decides the what and then brings in the frontline people, the practitioners, on an ongoing basis to do the how it seems to make too much sense. Almost. Am I missing something?
1: It does make complete sense the way you framed it. Uh, it as long as the assumption is true that you've said the what, and now the person who has to go and execute has everything they need to go do the how, but rarely is that actually true um, because either authorities are fragmented. They don't actually have the skills or the capabilities or the money. Uh, they're going to need other parts of the organization to help them which really means because of the way the organization is set up, just asking your subordinates to actually have said out what you need to do, you figure out how to do it. I think it's a great leadership maxim. Um, they need to go figure that out, but you've got to help them and support them as they do it. It can't just be a, a fire and forget sort of What
0: Are there best practices to providing that support or does it depend on what each individual change project involves?
1: I think the answer is yes. Um, <laughs> one one common way of doing it first is to make it is to burn the boat, meaning you've you, you've said where we need to get going. Make it so we can't go backwards. the The common way to do this is to. Um, change the funding levels, right? Say, hey, we're going to become more productive or I'm going to reduce the funding that we're doing here. That is a way of burning the boat. But if you don't get into then making sure the change happens, of course, it just hollows things out. So it's okay. I think it's a good way of making it so you can't backtrack and we've got to find a, a new way here. Um, but it has to be done carefully. Um, otherwise, we'll get weird second order effects in there that will actually be super detrimental, but they won't show up for three or four years. Um, I think the next best practice uh, to consider here, uh, how to support folks as they're doing this, is setting up the regular cadence uh, of a dialogue with them. Hey, what is the progress we're doing? And ask them to make it about the issues that they're facing. How are we doing on progress? What are the issues? And help them work through, what do you need from me? And and so I think you see that oftentimes a common leadership technique of, here's my priorities, I want to meet every month, how are we doing our progress but it's less an update and it's much more of a dialogue about what do you need to keep going faster uh, and to keep making progress
0: what keeps those communications pathways whether they're meetings or whatever what keeps them productive rather than being eye rollers for the people who are uh, invited slash required to come to those meetings
1: Oh, for sure, right? Like how many of us have sat through those meetings where it's a it's a dog and pony show and who's ever the best briefer wins, right? Um, I think to keep those things alive, first, I would recommend how do you tie whatever that change effort is into the core part of the mission of what you're trying to get done. Um, so that the connection there is quite clear. Um, I think the second thing uh, to do is is to understand what's the information source to understand where are we at, right? In the private sector, it's just so much easier because at the end of the day, you have a very clear scoreboard around, you know, top line revenue versus bottom line cost. It's so much easier that way, but you got to figure out the same one. And that's where I think performance management really does come into play. And it should be set up by somebody who is independent from the organization that's doing the change. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be like the GAO, for example, but it does need to be somebody who ideally that other people in the organization you're reviewing really do respect. I, I came from the air force and I would say the the people who did the best job of that um, as an independent folks were what we call the patch wearers as pilots. They were the best of the best and they were seen as the ones who they were trying to help us get better, but they also could really see where we were at. Who are those folks? Um, it's quite a different thing than an IG where you know, does the organization really respect who is in the IG and what are the incentives there? Uh, and so I, I would actually consider figuring out the people who others look to the most as the highest performers and having them play that role.
0: Is making big change in uh, government different than making big change in the private sector? Are there different steps? Are there different techniques? Are there different evaluators for success, and so on? And if so, what are they, Kirk?
1: That's a really tough one, uh, and it it changes because in the in the government, the metrics feel oftentimes like a lot of people are grasping for them, and they're never going to be good enough. Uh, and, and I would just acknowledge that. And so the idea that you can manage by metrics, I think, is just craziness. Um, but what they do is you if you use them as a tool of where do I dig in to understand more, that's that's where gold happens. I think the – and my firm is as guilty of it as any, right? The stoplight charts of red, yellow, green are are the most dangerous things in a way because it makes the metrics start looking like that's the grade and we want everything to go green. Instead of looking at it as, all right, hey, I'm seeing this one thing going down. Why is that? And let's solve that thing. It just tells me where to look, not what the answer is.
0: Last question. So you and I sit down for the first time. I'm bringing you in to help me manage whatever it is I'm trying to change in my organization. And I'm starting to build this strategy. I'm starting to fulfill this vision that you have of organizing for change, laying out tactics and and all of that. What's the most common mistake that you've seen before? that you wanna make sure I don't do when I have a clean slate from which to work, Kirk?
1: The mistake that I would want you to miss, what I think will up your chances, is, because I think you'll just do a lot of things naturally, is the choice you make on how you set up the the change effort. If you're a senior leader, any effort you do is gonna be a big effort, mostly. Um, And really, I think there are only three different kinds of approaches you can use but oftentimes we there's not a lot of thought put into and we don't even know there are three options and we just pick one and we typically it's hey i want to make a change happen so i'm going to pick this person and you go get a team and you make it happen right i would actually be much more deliberate about that and i would think through what's the kind of change i'm i'm trying to do and then what's the right approach for that change and those three approaches that i that we've seen at McKinsey that That work really well, and they only work within the right context, but one is the incubator model, which is where you take out this brand new idea and you give it its own authority, its own small organization, and you let them run. Uh, It's a small thing, and you almost have to protect it from the larger organization. right? And that's important, especially when you're trying to do self-disruptive things or things that the organization itself wouldn't naturally do. Uh, For example, trying to outsource things commercialized things is a common version of politics the second model is the pathfinder approach which is look this is the most common one that i see where people in this become a little more standard practice uh where hey we know this is a good idea we want to pilot it somewhere the trick though in this pathfinder approach is that you have to do two things with it one is it can't be too big or too small it has to be something that the top of the house cares about it can't be so small that it doesn't really require change to happen and if it's too small you won't care so make it a big enough thing that the pathfinder you really care about and at the same time who's ever running that organization that they have the people in it on their team that they can within their own model make the changes that are necessary and they have all of the authorities and the expertise it's also called an agile team right but that they can really make things happen uh, on this pathfinder approach the last one is called is the transformation office Uh, this oftentimes gets slapped on top of a, a change effort without thinking through why am i using this approach versus the others and where i see it gets misused is that the transformation office inherently is trying to make change happen within the existing organizational model you have which is great as long as that's the organizational model that will work but if you're trying to do something that is you know uh anathema to the organization or, or disrupting it it will never work right uh or, or so you just got to be careful i find transformation offices are usually really good when you need the whole of the organization all moving towards something but it's really already set up so it's almost more of a driving continual progress
0: Kirk, we've covered a lot of ground in this conversation and a lot more questions I'd like to ask, but we're out of time. I'm grateful for you joining me today. I appreciate it.
1: Francis, thank you so much. This has been incredibly fun, and uh, thank you for the
0: chance to talk. You've been listening to McKinsey on Government, a presentation of McKinsey and Company. Our next episodes in a couple of weeks. You can subscribe to get it and all episodes of McKinsey on Government everywhere you get your shows. I'm the host of McKinsey on Government, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.